This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Don Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. Ford Sora. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Now, I approached Danielle about coming on the show because I wanted to talk to somebody who was inside the Federal Reserve but didn't come from an academic background, didn't have a PhD in finance. I wanted to talk to somebody who actually had a background in in finance, in banking. So many of the people at the Fed, in fact, all of them currently uh, in positions of power, come from academia without any real world experience. And if you listen to my episode with Mark Yusko, we talk about uh, this book, The Dow Jones Averages, and how it does such a great job explaining the limitations of such a specialized approach to anything, but especially the markets and economics. So it was really a pleasure to talk to someone like Danielle, who takes a much more holistic, a much more common sense view towards these things. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for doing this. It's really a pleasure for me to be able to pick your brain like this and, and talk to an expert in this field that we are all so interested in these days. These, uh, those of us in finance, seems like uh, central banking and the Fed in particular are the central focus for a lot of us and uh, not for no reason. But uh, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. I'm so happy to be here today, Jesse. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, I um, I want to find out um, a, a little more about your background. It's you didn't start in um, you know economics, did didn't you start in finance? I did. Uh, I uh, my father, may he rest in peace, taught economics, and so therefore, as any rebellious child uh, should do, I ran as far from economics as, as I could. Even though, uh, <laughs> truth be go. told, when I was in business school, I, I really did well in my economics classes and enjoyed them. But I, I would never have admitted that to him. So what what it was it about finance? I mean, you know, more than just rebelling that uh, that really drew your interest. <laughs> Uh, well, it was actually uh, just counting the sheer number of men on Solomon Brothers' old trading floor way downtown New York and a handful of women. And this was one of, my, one of the first interviews I went to up on Wall Street to see if it might be for me. And once I did that math and went, okay, a million men and like three women, clearly if a woman can make it in this world, she can make it anywhere, to use a cliche. And, uh, and I got hooked. And I, you know, I, I grew up around Wall Street journals. I grew up around uh, the stock market. I was probably one of the few 17-year-olds in 1987 who was aware that the market had crashed. So I, I've certainly always had the bug. Well, I, I love that. I, I interviewed uh, Helene Meisler uh, recently, and that was one of the questions I asked for. Why aren't there more women in finance? And, you know, there are more these days than there were back then. But uh, that's I, I love that uh, reaction. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> Perfect. Um, what, so you started at, um, was it Credit Suisse? Well, it eventually became Credit Suisse. That was way after the fun ended. I started at a, at a firm called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genrette. Okay. 
So there were, uh, it, it was really a, tr- it was a truly entrepreneurial place on Wall Street. There, there were no lines of demarcation. You just literally made money. That was in the firm's mandate. Go make money. And so, and, and what, uh, what part of the firm were you working at at DLJ? Well, I was in sales, and that's kind of why I bring up the fact that there were no lines of demarcation, because I had hedge funds and corporations doing share buybacks and debt retirement, some high net worth individuals. You know, but before private equity was even on everybody's radar, you know, I'd watched Leon Black uh, and Tony James and others walk the halls, because uh, DLJ was... And it's one of the few things that actually remains from that name is that our merchant bank continues to live. Uh, so I learned a lot about private equity a long time ago, and clearly that dominates the shadow banking world today. So you got a little bit of a taste of everything, though. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we inherited the boys from Drexel, from their junk bond desk, uh, who would have easily sold me down the river with their grandmother tied to me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and so you were, you were in sales and you got a little taste of everything there. How, how did you, um, how did your career kind of, uh, you know, uh, navigate from there? Or how did you end up going to Credit Suisse and what was your, what, you know, how, well, how Credit Suisse bought uh, out DLJ at the top. In fact, that marked the top, uh, several quarters ago, they, um, they, they took a huge loss on that purchase. And I mean, several quarters ago, 2016, yeah. uh, they took a, a final gigantic loss on that DLJ purchase. It, it truly marked the top of the internet bubble. And, uh, but it wasn't much fun after we were acquired, uh, by Credit Suisse and then nine 11 happened as well. And just between you and me, Jesse, I used to have a champagne and Jimmy Choo habit that was really expensive. So, uh, I sent myself back to, to night school at Columbia and I got my second master's in journalism while I was still working full time. I went, I went to night school and that was always going to be my retirement plan was to write about the markets, uh, after I retired off of wall street and then nine 11 happened. And, uh, my uh, my career path was accelerated because I figured life is really really short. Yeah, and, and what was the impetus? I guess you know, besides more than just a retirement plan, there's something about writing um, and and covering it rather than being in it that appealed to you. What was that? Well, so I've always been a writer, and it's always been kind of we're all born with a gift, and um, and writing was always my gift, and I always enjoyed it. When I was actually in sales, I wrote a weekly uh, macro take uh, on the markets, on the economy, that I managed to somehow, some way, get past compliance uh, and out to my clients, and I really noticed myself uh, enjoying that quite a bit, and that was part of what. Uh, caused me to send myself back to school, and uh, and and it's just one of these things where you've got to know yourself. You know, they, they teach you in sales; you better know your client. And it was a matter of getting to know myself a little bit better, and and seeing that I truly enjoyed uh, writing about the economy, writing about the market. So that, that was a, it. Was after nine eleven that you went to journalism school? Well, I actually um, it was before then. I graduated in December of one. Okay. Uh, so on nine eleven, I was in journalism school, which was just surreal. Yeah, yeah. And so then, after journalism school, 
I mean, did you go into journalism or, or, or where did you go from there? Uh, well, uh, I ended up meeting somebody and started long distance dating between Dallas and, uh, and New York. And when I was asked to move to Dallas, I pulled a line out of Liar's Poker. I said, equities in Dallas. There, there's no way I'm going to work in no. Dallas, Texas off Wall Street. Little did I know this was, you know, one day going to become Hedge Fund Central. Uh, but I ended up signing a non-compete and leaving the industry in exchange for Credit Suisse writing me a huge check. And uh, so I figured my retirement plan was intact. There was my nest egg. I called the publisher of the Dallas Morning News. I said, you know, by the time I get past the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, frankly, I've never heard of your your newspaper, but I'm willing to work for free. And uh, and the publisher said, well, that, that works really well with my budget. So... Yeah. I ended up starting off writing about the markets. Uh, week one, I wrote a piece on the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation and landed on the front page of the newspaper. And within six six months, I had a daily column that covered the markets that ended up being read worldwide. And and what was your? I mean, how did it feel? I mean, obviously, it's very different in some respects to you know being in finance. I mean, how, how did you feel in those days writing? Was it was it all you hoped it was? Well, it was all I hoped. It was all I I hoped that it would be, and then some. Uh, I, I was pretty traumatized by uh, by a presentation that had been given at Credit Suites shortly before I left on um, on mortgage backed securities, on pools, on tranches, on. And I just I, I said, who on earth would ever think of buying these CDOs? And even raised my hand in, in the presentation, and I said, what? idiot would buy this equity tranche. Um, but let's just say that that planted the seed. And I, I got to know a very young economist early on in my very short career as a journalist named Jan Hatzius when he was coming up at Goldman Sachs. And we got to talking about things like mortgage equity withdrawal and 125% loan to value toxic waste that was uh, trading on fixed income trading floors. And I Pretty soon there, I had the housing bug and started writing about it long before most others. And, and what was the housing bubble like in Texas? I mean, was it was it the same as it was in, in a lot of the other? I mean, because I, I was here and, you know, speaking of writing about Wall Street off Wall Street, I've been doing it in Bend, Oregon for a long time. <laughs> it feels like middle of nowhere because it is. But we had, you know, this little city here in, in Bend, we had the number one most or one one or two right around the peak of the bubble, most overvalued market in the country. And so I got to witness it firsthand, just the, the absolute mania, watch people pull out equity and, and leverage it into 12, 13 spec homes. Um, you know, and that was not uncommon. What, was it similar in Texas? You know, it was actually the opposite. And I was lucky that I had been in New York and that I continued to, to visit New York, <clears throat> but it was quite the opposite in, in Texas because of the, 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 um, the scars from the savings and loan crisis caused the state legislature really to put the kibosh on home equity lending. And those laws weren't reversed until the very tail end of the housing bubble. So it, it actually prevented Texas from sliding down that slope with the rest of the country and provided a very unique vista for me because I was not in the middle of bubble central. I was watching the macro economy um, unravel. So even in Dallas, where I was, foreclosures were going through the roof, and that was without 
people pulling tremendous amounts of cash out of their overvalued homes. Uh, but I, I definitely had a good place, to, an objective spot to study the rest of the country and the sand states, so to speak. And um, again, maybe it's because I had come from New York and was probably miserable my first few years in Dallas uh, due to the stark contrast in cultures. But um, but I was able to study the housing market and wrote about it extensively. That, that Warren Buffett looked me up at, at one point. Is that right? Through oh, the yeah. end, I, through the... I traveled out to Omaha. I did. Oh, really? He looked oh, you up. He, and, he invited me out to Omaha. He's like, wow, you really are unleashed. You're writing things like you. And I'm like, well, you try it. It, it, it was life after compliance is really, really, really what yeah, it was. You, right. and, until you leave Wall Street, you don't realize how encumbering compliance can be and, and how stifling it is. Well, what was, so Buffett was interested in your coverage of the real estate market? That and, and the fact that I had, uh, I, I had begun to be concerned about what Greenspan was calling a conundrum. I didn't think there was any conundrum about what the Chinese were, were doing in our treasury market. And in fact, I felt that over the very, very long haul, it might put our economy in a precarious position basically, to mortgage the farm off to the kindness of strangers in Shanghai. Um, thank heavens that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I, that, that was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. No, well, yeah. Uh, well, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that these days? I mean, obviously, because it's, you know, now we're 10, 12 years later, and it's becoming much more of an issue. What, what, how do you think about it? It is. You know, I used to not follow the ticks flow uh, as closely as I do now, uh, a fellow by the name of George Goncalves, he's the treasury strategist over at Nomura. He and I became good friends over the years when I was at the Fed. And um, I, I really do like his deep analysis of foreign flows. And if you study what the Chinese have been doing, they've been behaving a lot like rational fixed income investors and shortening the duration of their treasury portfolio. And that tells me uh, that we are venturing out as a sovereign nation on the risk spectrum and flirting with the potential of, uh, of some nasty auctions in our future. If we don't put our fiscal seatbelts on and try and begin to address the debt problem in this country that 99% of people say does not matter. 99% of people say the debt problem doesn't matter, but I think most of them don't realize it doesn't matter so long as we have somebody like China who is willing to finance it. Correct. We are dependent upon the kindness of strangers in Shanghai. Right. And, you know, not only are they, you know, shortening up their duration, they're also buying a lot of gold and encouraging a lot of Chinese citizens to buy gold. And, as and, are the Germans, as are many other nations. Yeah. So it seems to me they see the writing on the wall. Um, what, uh, you know, this also brings up the discussion of the normalization of the balance sheet, right? The Fed has been pursuing quantitative easing for the better part of a decade now, bought, what, $4 trillion worth of assets, and now they're proposing to re start reducing the size of that balance sheet. But that, you know, again, depends upon the kindness of strangers, right? Of course it does. Um, you know, I, I was, of course, inside the Fed for the better part of a decade myself, and, uh, you know, I'll never forget the few hawks who were around at the time, Honig, Charlie Plosser, of course, my boss, Richard Fisher. And the only reason that things like inflation targets and, and iterations of QE2 
the only reason that a lot of these things were um, were stomached by uh, by the the more hawkish members on the Federal Open Market Committee was that there was uh, th- there were huge promises of rapid exit. So I, I find it to be just hilarious, not in a good way. I mean, not like funny, funny, haha, but it's just extraordinary that we are finally starting to talk about unwinding the balance sheet. And I, I don't think the Fed would be as as uh, as hellbent as they are on embarking upon this journey. A, if they were truly apolitical, and B, if they knew that they're the, the gamble wasn't all that risky because Kuroda and Draghi and God knows what's happening in the People's Bank of China, but they know that quantitative easing is running at a record pace, which is saying something given how much we used to be doing in terms of quantitative easing and expanding our own balance sheet. If you look at it net-net, that $10 billion a month isn't even going to begin to move the needle. And I think the guys and gal, sorry, there's a, there's definitely a gal at the Fed, right. uh, but I think they know it. Yeah, and 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 so, what you know, that's one of the questions um, somebody tweeted in is, you know, what do you think the likelihood of if, of a normalization of the balance sheet? It, well, first of all, I remember, you know, yes, it's a very good point to make that you know these emergency policies were, you know, on the at the outset at least, you know, very clearly emergency policies that should have been removed when the emergency was over, right? right. And uh, I think I remember the Fed saying, you know, at what six and a half percent unemployment or seven percent, you know, we will have we will start normalizing. And, yeah, they, and, they kept you know, moving that target. Yeah, yeah. And so now we're, you know, four percent or something unemployment and we're we're just starting to try and normalize the balance sheet. What do you think the probability of them being able to to normalize is? Well, so I have post-traumatic stress disorder from being on the inside for as long as, as I was. And well, let's, let's, let's get to that first then. I mean, how well, did you end up? At the I, I don't Fed? think that the fed has any sincere intention of giving up its fortress balance sheet. Uh, I don't know what the odds are that they'll even be able to shrink it appreciably before they invert the yield curve Uh, because they are – look, Janet Yellen gave a watershed speech uh, and and literally in front of God and everyone at the National Association of Business Economics changed her stripes. She said mea culpa – that they had misjudged inflation and the labor market and the interaction of the two, and that they were going to become a much more hawkish, aggressively tightening Fed. It was like watching somebody have an out-of-body experience. So given that as a backdrop, it would appear that the Fed is intending to invert the yield curve, which ergo tells you, that they won't be able to shrink the balance sheet and that Ken Rogoff's happiest dream of negative interest rates and blowing the balance sheet up further and eradicating cash and calling us people with C-notes in our wallets criminals could come true. And these are truly the things that, that, that keep me up at night. But again, I'm don't listen to me. I'm just a former central banker. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you know, a, a, a couple different reasons why they might, you know, 
be wanting to normalize now, even though you know the economy probably doesn't look like it can it can stand much more um, in the way of rising interest rates. You know, I mean, one could be that uh, they want to you know just reload the ammunition for the next next downturn, so they have something. But they also could be seeing real inflation on the horizon. Um, do you think either one of those or both are, are kind of on their minds right now, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's pretty curious. Um, you know, I, I joke all the time. You know, the last one out turned the lights off when it comes to the Federal Reserve Board because they are clearly a dwindling pool of humanity, <clears throat> uh, and that tells you that somebody else is going to be capable of exerting much more power. Uh, if you think that I'm trying to not answer your question, you're wrong. Bill Dudley's New York Fed rolled out a new inflation metric a few days ago. It was pretty revolutionary, and it's sitting at 2.74%. So he's the vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee, and I dare say that the Fed has decided to recognize that inflation has left the barn. Now, no, I, I think bear most in mind, Americans... we know that, that sorry, well, 50% of the average household's expenses, rent, health care, college tuition, yeah. that inflation is a runaway train. So if you tell the average American that inflation's too low, you might want to say it far away from them because they might be apt to want to slap you. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and that that brings up, uh, you know, there's just a massive disconnect, I think, between, you know, central bankers and the, you know, American people, people around the world, uh, you know, which is, you know, at least partly responsible for this kind of populist uprising we're seeing in a lot of different places. Um what what do you see in this in this trend? I mean, do you agree that's what's going on? And and uh, what do you see in in that sort of a, a trend? So you know, I saw a really naive tweet come across my feed uh, a few days ago, and it said, "You've been you you've been sounding the warning on pensions for a very long time. Won't this help pensions to raise interest rates?" And, uh, you know, if you were looking at liabilities in a vacuum, that would certainly be the case. The potential impact on an over-leveraged, risky asset, you name it, junk bonds, emerging market, this, that, the stock market, commercial real estate, high-end residential real estate, the, the offsetting impact could be much, much deeper than any kind of a benefit pensions will get on the liability side. And the reason I bring this up is because... If I shouldn't say it, when markets correct, I think that that people will be out to get the central bankers of the world. At some point, some generation is going to figure out that it's it's central bankers playing politics that has put them in such a precarious position. Um, and I do not want to yell fire in a crowded theater. I, I don't, this is not hyperbole. It really isn't. But central bankers are at the core of the inequality divide and what has exacerbated that inequality divide worldwide to the benefit of a handful of investors. And it's, you know, they operate under the assumption that nobody's ever going to figure it out, Jesse. And that's why I wrote a whole book in plain English to help people figure it out. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and so you think it's um, central bankers playing politics? Is that is that it? Well, sure. Of course they are. 
you know, I mean, it's, because you're right. I mean, it's very, very difficult to, first of all, I think it's, it's silly to say, yes, we're trying to create a wealth effect by boosting, you know, the prices of risk assets, but we're not responsible for wealth inequality, right? That's totally disingenuous. They might not be solely responsible, but they've definitely exacerbated it. Um, well, certainly they have, and they've seen it. I mean, these are not, this is the, the funny thing is it's their data. If you look at, at, at at the inequality data, a lot of it is Fed data. They All they need to do is read their latest flow of funds report and show that the paper gains in equities show that, that they're at, at a greater level vis-a-vis income than they've ever, ever been. And, and Yellen has really, truly has the chutzpah to say something like persistently easy monetary policy might eventually lead to increased leverage. Yeah. It's like, woman, do you know there's over $220 trillion of debt on planet earth and that it's gone up by $70 trillion since 2007. So eventually has come and gone. Yeah. Well, but I want to, I guess I want to figure out exactly what you mean by, you know, playing politics. Are they, are they just trying to, um, paper over the, the, the debt problem that we have? Is that, is that what you mean? Or, or no, not at all. Uh, you know, if you listen to, and Bernanke was at the helm of the Fed for the majority of the time that I was there. And most of the time that he went in front of Congress, he would implore them to do something to do their job. And in interviews that he gave subsequent to leaving office, Bernanke said, you know, he was he, he felt compelled to offset what, pol- what what politicians were not doing. But the flip side of that is that if you're keeping interest rates slammed at the zero bound, a politician's never going to have to do anything but keep writing checks, because that's what you get to do as Jim Grant tells us, when the borrowing costs of the country are at 1.8%. Uncle Sam didn't even have the sense to go out like Mexico or Argentina and go into the 100-year bond market because they wanted to play smoke and mirrors with super low interest rates and keep treasuries on the short end of maturities. We even squandered that opportunity. And again, that was care of the Fed. The Fed enabling politicians to behave badly, in my view, is the same exact thing as the Fed playing politics. Interesting. Yeah. And so them feeling like even though they don't even have the, and, you know, this really gets at what is the what is the real problem here? And I, I, for me, um, you know, I, I've always thought, you know, the dual mandate is, yes, the, the Fed can probably control inflation as long as the federal government is is playing along with them um but to try and and manipulate the unemployment rate you know to to create full employment with the tools they have is just we're we're asking for trouble <laughs> right oh, this is look, why it, we have it is the, the the dual mandate is was the genesis of mission creep at the fed yeah. and and now we're seeing it on well, we were seeing it on steroids, I should say, um, when Janet Yellen was in lesser positions than she is today, when she was the very influential president of the San Francisco Fed. Uh, and when she came onto the board, she was one of the greatest advocates for inflation targeting, for expanded quantitative easing. And she was constantly trying to pull that last marginal worker off the sidelines. But again, Uncle Sam took that 
opportunity of low interest rates, and we've seen an explosion in transfer payments in this country over the past decade. And last I checked, once you get on disability by law, you're on disability for life. So that means the only thing that that Yellen bought in terms of time was more time to hang ourselves with future financial instability. Yeah. Um, but a lot of this also comes back to, you know, the federal government just not doing, you know, it seems to me that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the way to uh, fix a lot of this stuff is, would be for the government to go back to saying, you know, you guys just literally need to be the lender of last resort to prevent a banking crisis, right? Wasn't that why the Fed was originally set up? And all this other nonsense, this, uh, you know, uh, monetary policy to try and um, experimental policy uh, or discretionary monetary policy um, has only, cre- you know, exacerbated booms and busts in the economy. Um, do you think that's correct, you know, or and do you think that's ever possible to go back to you know, uh, that, that type of a central bank. Well, I've certainly advocated for it and I've written about it extensively, uh, that the federal reserve does not need to be ended, but that it really needs to be upended. And part of that, it, well, that has to start with a strong Congress because these things will require acts plural of Congress, uh, to begin to rein in, Uh, the Fed to what it was originally supposed to be, which, as you rightly point out, lender of last resort, period, end. Well, you know, and and back then, I I finished reading um, Roger Lowenstein's uh, America's Bank recently about the creation of the Federal Reserve. It's a fascinating read and pretty even-handed, which is nice. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that go along with the the creation of the Fed that, uh, you know... I, I, I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, he writes about it was such a difficult process because Americans were so against a central bank in the first place. Where has that um, that spirit gone? It seems like uh, most people don't even know. I mean, ob- all of us in finance, obviously, very well aware. I mean, we've been forced to be with uh, what's gone over the past decade. But the average American doesn't know who Janet Yellen is, doesn't know who the Federal Reserve is, and uh, obviously could care less what they're up to. Um, how does that change? Where, where did that sentiment go? Is that, is that going to make a comeback at some time? Well, I would have hoped that the change of administration uh, would have given more voice to a lot of those in Congress who have been advocating for a very long time to shine a, a brighter spotlight on the Fed. Uh, but that clearly has not happened. And the irony of what you describe in terms of the average American is that they don't realize how very directly the Fed plays into their personal finances, that because they can't go down to a bank and and get a jumbo CD for any appreciable yield, that they're forced to to go out and, and buy into very risky securities. Uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're fed, spoon fed by their average, you know, broker that long over the long haul, everything's going to work out just fine. And by the same token, most Americans don't realize that they've been encouraged to borrow because of a cultural shift that began under Alan Greenspan. We, we were not always this way as a country. We were not always a 
a borrow to spend. We used to be a save to spend place, and that made us a lot more secure as a sovereign nation than where we find ourselves today. Right. And there, in, it was the Greenspan Fed that began that shift, and, and how so? Well, Alan Greenspan was the individual who, in the aftermath of the 1987 stock market crash, started feeding fixed income trading desks uh, insider information. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He would, he would float the fact that he was about to move interest rates to bond traders before letting the New York uh, Fed's open market operations implement the move. And that, that's front-running the Fed, plain and simple. And other opportunities that presented themselves, 1996, irrational exuberance, hey, maybe some higher margin requirements would be would, would come in handy here, Alan, if, if you think that the stock market's a runaway train, and or 1998 with long-term capital management. He was the architect uh, who saved that fledgling hedge fund. But at every stop along the way, moral hazard went through the roof. And interest rates were taken lower and lower and lower. And the uh, ability to speculate and not suffer consequences grew. And the wherewithal to borrow became that much easier as he drove interest rates. Eventually, uh, his predecessor, excuse me, his successor to zero. This was his culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you just look at it, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious to anybody who looks at it. You look at you know, when the, the times the Fed funds rate were below any you know, reasonable policy rate, you know, as indicated by the Taylor rule or you know, the two-year treasury or you know, whatever. Rates get too low and you know, we get a dot-com bubble, get too low again, we get the housing bubble, and now they've been too low for the better part of a decade. And I call it the everything bubble, but I mean, real estate prices... Uh, corporate bond prices are um, you know spreads are you know super tight. Equity prices are higher than ever before in history. Um, it, it's it's pretty clear to anybody you show this to that uh, yeah they've encouraged way too much you know debt creation during those periods when they kept rates too low for too long. No, there was even um, uh, an interview with Janet Yellen before she became Fed chair, where she said we need to find a way to get off of this, you know, boom bust train and get to a more, more sustainable policy. I'll have to Lovely. share that with you. I'll put, a, I'll put a link in it. But, you know, and it's obvious that since she's become, you know, chair, she has not made the steps to do that. Do you think that's just a function of that, you know, um, playing politics? I mean, what changes when, uh, you know, I, I always have this, this idea in my head too, where, you know, somebody becomes president, somebody becomes fed chair, and then they show them all the secret reasons why you can't do any of the stuff you talked about before you were elected to the office or before you got this office. Here's all the see because people change so quickly as soon as they get in the office, it's just the pressure of the office. Well, that, you know what, that, that's part of it, but that's too easy. Yeah. Because you could say that for anybody who comes into a position of power. It's, 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 it's a little bit too convenient for me. Yeah. And my, my greatest issue, and I think that, that what's, what stops central bankers from being stronger people, from having a stronger constitution, is that if, if you truly buy into the garbage that you can only clean up the aftermath of a bubble, 
and you approach life with that broken mindset, uh, mm-hmm. then you will never end up allowing creative destruction to do what it's supposed to do, and that is to cull the weak players out of the marketplace. And so today, it's not called Harrah's, it's called Caesar's, it's not called TXU, it's called Energy Transfer, whatever it's It's not called Clear Channel, it's called iHeart Communications, but these are over-levered companies that would not be with us otherwise if it was not for Fed policy. The problem is that the longer you push these trends and the more you forestall the inevitable, the higher the stakes at every iteration in this boom-bust cycle and to your everything bubble, uh, how I've described it, how I've written about it in the past has been to say that investors are blinded because there's nothing singular or solitary to focus on anymore. It's not it's not overvalued internet stocks. It's not overvalued residential real estate. It's bubble wrap. We're wrapped in it. And that makes it that much more difficult, I think, for average investors to understand how high the stakes have been. But you can bet your bottom dollar that policymakers understand the implications of what will happen if they allow markets to go back to their natural price discovery function. And that is that they will have to suffer a true correction. And I just, I don't think they can stomach it. We'll end up, we'll end up with politicians screaming from the mountains for the Fed to buy municipal bonds because states, plural, will have to be bailed out. And that's a function of not allowing creative destruction to take hold. It, what are your thoughts on, I mean, you make a great point that they've been in, you know, they, they don't think that they can see bubbles in real time or it's their job to try and prevent them or, or at least uh, uh, not even, not encourage them. Um, uh, so hence we've been in cleanup mode since the bursting of the dot-com bubble, essentially, right? We were in kind of bubble cleanup mode then and created the housing bubble. And now we've been in financial crisis, housing bubble cleanup mode for, for a decade. Um, how do you think, I mean, what is the, what is the end game? Are we going to be just in cleanup mode after these other bubbles burst and, and, uh, what is the ability of the fed to, to, to clean up after the next downturn? I know, I know that's looking way off into the distance, but it seems to me that you can only, it's just does not work as well as it did uh, a long time ago. And, and you can't just be in cleanup mode forever. What are your no, thoughts on that? I mean, look, every time they have another go at it, they're going to have less and less effectiveness. It's, it's just, it, it's the, the punch is losing its power. And I think they're so fearful of this. If you look at somebody like Mario Draghi, it's like it's like watching somebody have an existential crisis in real time. Uh, you know, he, he can't even fathom the taper because uh, who knows what's hiding it on Deutsche Bank's balance sheet. But but I digress. But it's I, I just I don't think that central bankers can can stomach what's to come. But by the same token, the only thing they have left is the confidence bubble. And once that's gone, I, I don't know what follows. I really don't. Because the Fed's the own staff papers is... have shown that quantitative easing didn't work. 
Japan has shown us that negative interest rates don't work. So what what are they going to pull out of their hat? What's next? So so by confidence bubble, you mean um, market participants' belief in central bankers' ability to prop up markets? Is that oh, and yes. to hold the economy up? The omnipotence yeah. of central bankers, the fact that they will always come riding to the rescue. These are the things that keep markets propped up where they are. It is a confidence bubble. I, I, I'm borrowing that from my good friend Peter Bookvar, but it's a confidence bubble. Yeah, no, I, I've I've actually called it a confidence game in that, you know, the central bank policies work to the extent people believe that they work. Um, but it seems like people always... You know that that myth is always busted at, at some point in the cycle when the central bankers. Well, the, the alternative uh, is, and I actually got, I, I, I got in a very heated discussion, shall we say, on stage recently um, when I was up uh, debating somebody who was of a different mindset than me, shall we say? Uh, but his assumption is what I see come out all the time. And that is QE4 followed by outright debt monetization that all of the developed economies of the world will agree to, given the alternative. And I'm like, well, isn't that special? <laughs> and and it's it, but that is the working assumption. If if you talk to the Ken Rogoffs of the world, and they are part of this generation of up and coming central bankers. It will come down to outright debt monetization, so and that, you know, that requires was, an international, global um, acceptance of that route. Or you have the alternative, and the alternative, it, it's it's it, it does involve war, but not currencies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just seems to me, and I know people have said for a long time that quantitative easing, you know was going to be inflationary and um, hasn't proved that in the traditional CPI numbers, although it's hard to argue it's not inflationary for asset prices. Um, it would seem to I mean, me it that... It can you know, be inflationary. Debt buildups, by definition, have to be deflationary yeah. because you are, you, you, with, with every trillion dollars of debt that is created, you have to allocate more and more resources to funding that debt, which means that you have fewer and fewer resources to fund all of your other that's, purchases. Yeah. So that, that's my point really is so that if the, all that debt buildup was so deflationary, you know, debt forgiveness is incredibly inflationary. Right? And that so, is what really we could be talking about in terms of an end game. It could be somebody flipping a switch because that would be how quickly it would happen. You would go from this deflationary impetus that seemed like it was going to go on forever to hyperinflation. And Just nobody over, wants to believe that. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's what makes it all the more compelling to me from a sentiment perspective. Everybody thinks it's the new normal. It's a deflation. We're never going to see inflation ever again. I spoke to William White on the podcast uh, about a month ago. And, oh, he's and wonderful. He's wonderful. One, of the, one of the few people saying, no, you know, this demographics and these debt issues are all looking like they're coming to a, an inflationary head and sooner than, than most people see. Um, and, and so to me, that's something that, you know, maybe even the Fed is thinking about that, uh, you know, coming to pass sooner than, than, uh, than anybody else. And it's also why, you know, why they need to start raising interest rates. I mean, they could quickly find themselves far behind the curve and that could be 
problematic you know, Bill for is, uh, Bill is the individual who brought to my attention the group of 30, which I encourage everyone listening uh, to go and Google the group of 30. And if you're ever wondering why all central bankers seem to sound alike, it's because they all belong to the same club. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we've talked about all these problems and stuff with, you know, the Fed and central banks. Is this, is this kind of what you saw, you know, back when you joined the Dallas Fed and why, what, what, uh, I guess gave you the reason to try and join and, and make some a positive impact from the inside? Is that, is that what got you yeah, there? Yeah, I really did. Uh, I had no, uh, I had no reason to go off and make very little money working for a, a gigantic bureaucratic institution that, you know, the only thing it really offered was a pension and great health care, which goes on to explain a lot of why people who join central banks never leave them, because they happen to enjoy mediocrity and lifelong pensions. But no, I truly joined to go and try and serve my country. Uh, I was excited about working for Richard Fisher. He and I both had our MBAs in finance. We both started off on Wall Street. Neither of us were PhDs in economics. And I uh, naively said, wow, man, one man can make a difference. Um, I was wrong. It's a massive machine. And it really is run by a bunch of academics. There's no conspiracy. There's no Rothschild. There's no all the crazy things that, that, that I see all the time. It really isn't that. It's really a very quiet, quiet place. When I set foot in there, we were on the precipice of you know, the first nationwide housing crisis since the Great Depression. And it was so quiet on the inside. I, I, I thought I, I had stepped off into a parallel universe. Because these were the people who had engineered the housing bubble in the first place, and they didn't even seem to understand what was headed their way. Uh, and that was, you know, it, it was such a frustrating place to be because, you know, I was used to trading floors at instant. Uh, as human beings, we're not, we're not hardwired to seasonally yep. adjust everything, and that's what economists do and that's why they did not see the crisis coming and adding insult to injury pouring salt on the wound they recognized that their inflation metric was broken in 2009 and 2010 when the dust settled while they were still doing QE and chose to not do anything about it and and Jesse that's just wrong i mean hubris thy name is central banker yeah well, you know, you mentioned the difference between being at the Fed and working for a financial institution. And the, the first word that came to my mind was accountability, right? Uh, uh, you know, if, if you make a bad trade, you know, you're going to be held accountable for that. If you're on a, the prop desk or anywhere else, your salesperson, um, there's there's just no accountability at the Fed. Uh, and so, yeah, you also you mentioned the word frustrating. I can't imagine how frustrating it was. And so you were advisor to Richard Fisher, who at the time was the only uh, FOMC uh, board member with any real-world financial experience. Isn't that right? I, I was, and it was kind of stupefying to be in an environment where, you know, I'm like, has anybody heard of a credit default swap? Anybody notice that Merrill Lynch appears to be blowing up? I mean, I, I, I say these things sarcastically and rhetorically, yeah. uh, but even... There were, there, were, there were even too many of my counterparts at the New York Fed who were not well enough aware of 
some of the warning signs that the markets were signaling. And, and that was that, that was very, very uh, disheartening and alarming. So how did you, you stayed until, you were there till 2015. How did you stay that long? <laughs> I mean, how did you, because it seems to me that it's not just the financial crisis where they were, you know, completely unaware, but, you know, saying things like, you know, if we keep rates low, you know, we're going to inspire a lot of leverage, uh, you, know, uh, you know, debt creation. Are they not looking at what's going on right now? I mean, with the decoration we've already seen and the leverage among S&P 500 companies. And I mean, it's, it's obvious to anybody looking at it, um, you know, that, that it's not, it wasn't just about the financial crisis. It's almost an institutionalized myopia. Uh, you know what? It's funny you use that word because I call it monetary myopia. Um, and to answer your first question, Fisher moved me out of the research department halfway through my stint at the Fed in exchange for my agreeing to stay on for four more years until his final okay. vote. Okay. So it, yeah. it was very much a quid pro quo. And, and, and even, you know, during the worst of it, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had twins in the NICU in December of 07. You know, HSBC was blowing up and hedge funds oh here gosh. and there. And there comes Bear Stearns. As, as bad as it ever was, I, I never felt compelled to quit. Um, and I wanted to stay there alongside Fisher up until the very last of his votes because I didn't want to lose faith in the ability of, of, of a few people to try and make a difference. Um, and I still have faith that, that hopefully some independent thinkers can be uh, nominated to the Fed, you know we've heard a lot of it, a lot in the way of crickets chirping out of the White House. Uh, so you have to wonder. Yeah, what, but I'm, what trying do you think? To, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful. Yeah. Well, so what do you think um, in terms of hopefulness? You know, there's there's a lot of potential change um, coming to the Fed. What what are your thoughts on this? I mean, the name Kevin Warsh is tossed around, and and he's a guy who doesn't think uh, very much along the lines of a lot of the current members. You know, his name is thrown around uh, quite a bit. I would invite you to uh, look in the index of my book, Fed Up, and search out his name. Uh, He may or may not have, uh, in the transcripts, encouraged district bank presidents to dissent I would have preferred at the time uh, when iterations of QE were being pondered and Warsh was on the Federal Reserve Board uh, voicing his skepticism, I would have preferred that he dissented himself. Uh, So let's leave that at that. Um, But there are indeed names of independent individuals, people who would take a more disciplined approach to monetary policymaking. John Taylor's obviously one of them. You know, I, I don't think I, I think it's 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 a it's a red herring to say that one rule can possibly uh, can can possibly lead the largest central bank in the world. That being said, I'll, I'll take discipline in any form at this at, at this stage because right now it kind of feels like the Fed is making policy by throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Yeah, well, you know, my friend um, John Hussman likes mm-hmm. to to show that you know uh, if, in order to justify discretionary 
monetary policy should have to demonstrate that it has the desired impact, <laughs> right? Isn't that the most basic uh, thing that should happen uh, in, in that regard in terms of when you say disciplined, you know, a monetary policy discipline, that's what I think of is you want to do disc, you know, discretionary policy away from something like, you know, Taylor rule suggested policy, show us why it's going to have the impact that you hope it, it's going to have. Look, absolutely. I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, And also, you know, that's what I talked about with William White is, you know, the first do no harm, right? I mean, that would be a great way to impose discipline on on the Fed to say, you know what, for demonstrate that the the desire, the undesired effects of policy are not going to outweigh the desired effects. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, 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 uh, Richard Fisher was was criminalized in the media in 2008 because he was dissenting. And it wasn't so much that he didn't think that the markets were suffering um, from, you know, from a true liquidity crisis, which they were. But of course, these facilities that were created at the New York Fed, uh, they resolved those liquidity issues largely. But he kept saying, you know, we have a banking system to think of in this country. Can we just stop lowering interest rates and try and step back for a minute and appreciate what the implications are going to be if we drag interest rates down to the zero bound? Do you realize the number of entities and individuals who will be unduly harmed by this policy? And Peep and, and you know, Bernanke had his plan. It was actually called the Bernanke Plan, the Bernanke Doctrine. And I write about it in the book. This was a preordained path decided on at the 2007 Jackson Hole Conference. And come hell or high water, he was going to take interest rates to the zero bound because that was the precondition for launching quantitative easing. Well, I mean, I call BS on that. They could have started buying assets if that was the chosen path without having to have taken interest rates to the zero bound. To your point, Jesse, people need, central bankers need to look at both sides of a decision before just jumping in feet first. Yeah. Well, you, I, I know you've done a lot of work and kind of the quantitative easing um, leads into this. Uh, you've done a lot of work, research on the pension crisis. I, I almost said the coming pension crisis, but I, I think we're already in the midst of it. Um, uh, what What are you seeing uh, in this in this regard? I mean, it seems to me that there's no way any of these promises are going to be fulfilled. So many pensions are so far underfunded, even in the midst of an everything bubble, that um, it's going to be a big problem. And, you know, uh, for the economy and for, for I mean, uh, in countless ways. Um, you know, it, it absolutely is. But the most important aspect of what you just said is even with an everything bubble, and, and that really starts to shed light on how bad things are going to get for Chicago, for Illinois, um, for most of California, for Dallas, Texas, for Houston, Texas, where we've both just had emergency bond measures passed in the state legislature to top off the city's pensions, where Dallas had a unique thing occur a few months ago. We had a run on the pension, which I didn't even know was possible. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, I think that it is pensions that, that could be at the core of social unrest 
in the coming years. And I, I think that elderly poverty is a real possibility as the baby boomers age. And I have to wonder about how tested our judiciary is going to become because a lot of these pension crises will be playing out in the judiciaries. And from what the Illinois uh, courts have suggested thus far, it's that they're going to create a lot of stalemate situations. And, you know, it'll put it back on, you know, right now, today, we're watching Hartford, uh, you know, potentially go bankrupt. And the states can't do that. States cannot go bankrupt, just cities. So I, you know, I wonder to myself how the situation's going to be resolved if eventually it implies uh, a pushback to the federal government and a huge bailout of these states on the part of the federal government that will end up hurting everybody in the country. Uh, can you imagine the anger element uh, that something like that would create uh, if, if the people of the great state of Oregon and Texas are told that they've got to pay to bail out Chicago or Illinois? It, it, it's yep. it's not going to go over well. Right. No, it's it's not at all. But but I wonder if, you know, perversely, uh, you know, the Fed pursuing quantitative easing for so long to try and, you know, uh, push up a wealth effect is uh, has a lot to do with seeing this, you know, pension crisis unfolding, um, you know, seeing the you know potential uh, problems, you know, that it that it could create. Um, and, you know, it cre- exacerbates inequality, but it could be that the Fed was trying to, you know, ha- do their part in preventing a, p- a pension crisis. You think that enters into their thinking at all? Well, gosh, if, if that's just entering their thinking now, God help us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but that horse is out of the barn. I mean, it, it was uh, it, it was front page news when the German finance minister came out a few years ago. It made the American press and said, starting in 2018, we'll have German life insurance companies go under if negative interest rates are pursued indefinitely. Um, that's like next year, last I checked. Well, the, I guess my point is, too, that, you know, they're target their number one focus for quantitative easing you know could be a lot of people have accused them of using the stock market as their you know um, their key gauge at deciding whether or not to maintain or reduce quantitative easing and stock market starts falling they start worrying about these potential pension problems and say maybe we need to start quantitative easing again maybe we need to start buying stocks again uh, not again, but I mean, by start buying. Um, please, please don't say again. Uh, <laughs> Did something yeah, happen yes. while I was asleep? <laughs> I guess that was a, a Freudian slip there. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, Janet Yellen has talked about buying stocks, and you know, maybe that enters into their thinking. Um, and Janet Yellen has talked about negative interest rates. Yeah. And said that she would be fully on board if the circumstances demanded. Yeah. So yeah. no, look, I, um, it, it it would be. Uh, I just I I can't buy that the Fed is all of a sudden going to be concerned about pensions, given the low interest rate environment uh, is what fed the problem to begin with and what caused 
uh, pensions to not just go out the risk spectrum, but also take a deep dive into alternative investments and go out the liquidity spectrum. The the implications for I'll, I'll harp back on Illinois for a minute. They've got forty percent of the of, of the state's largest pension is in alternatives. You know, I ask you, what's going to happen when that sixty percent of liquid that probably is in some passive fund um, takes a hit, and they're writing checks? And they can't access that 40% that's an alternatives because it's not liquid. I mean, these are, again, maybe it's because I wrote these briefings when I was on the inside and, and these problems were unfolding uh, very much while the Fed was pursuing its QE policy. But this is nothing new. And um, it's fairly disingenuous to suggest that it would be something new on the Fed's radar unless they were the most myopic bunch of idiots on the planet. <laughs> well, you know, I, I wouldn't put a whole lot past them. But before, you know, let, let's end this on a, a positive note. Let's sure. say, Let, yes, let's. <laughs> let's say uh, President Trump just out of nowhere says um, new Fed chair, Danielle DiMartino Booth. What are your your policies to, um, I guess, uh, rectify some of the things that have been done in the past, or, or even more importantly, just create a sustainable uh, policy for the future of the Fed? Well, I would probably do something really awful, like say the new that say two is the new zero, and that we should never breach uh, that boundary on the way down for the sake of pension funds, 401k savers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that, and that because fed staff papers have shown unequivocally that quantitative easing does not work. Well, I wouldn't do that either. Um, I, I would be a much less actively engaged, uh, central banker, which would force Congress to do its job. That's not to say that you shouldn't monitor the economy. Um, but you certainly don't need, 800 PhDs to do it, and I think the organization could be that much more streamlined, and that would give it the opportunity to beef itself up on the regulatory side so that the regulators at the Fed could actually read a, you know, the most complex balance sheet in the world such that Wall Street wasn't always one step ahead of the Fed, and that is the case today, and it remains the case. All right. Well, I'm starting the um, campaign today for Daniela's Fed Chair <laughs> 2018. I'm writing. I'm going to write Donald Trump a letter right now. Um, no, I, honestly, I'm I'm really glad uh, that you're able to take the time to talk with me today. Where people um, who are interested in following your ideas, and so where can they where can they find you, Danielle? So I have world's longest name, and for that I I, I cannot apologize. Um, but follow me on Twitter uh, at Demartino Booth. That's D I M A R. T-I-N-O-B-O-O-T-H. And that also happens to be my website, uh, demartinobooth.com. There's a full archive of my subscription, uh, of, of my weekly writings there, over two years of them. Uh, jump on a trial subscription. I'm happy to include you as a reader. I have a weekly Bloomberg View column. Uh, and buy that up. That's the best way to get to know me quickly. It takes about 24, 48 hours to read. It's an easy sit-down read. And or I recorded it myself on Audible. Many ways to find me. 
Awesome. You know, I've been reading um, your website religiously, I think, since you started it. I think I've, I found it very shortly after you started it, and I've been reading it religiously ever since, so I highly recommend it. But um, uh, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a blast, and I think there's a lot of just valuable information for, for people uh, listening, and um, this has been great. So thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the time. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com forward slash podcast. And until next time, buy low, sell high. staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.